This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Case for Wisdom, a son's story about reconciling with his father. And the author, Jeffrey Woods. And Jeff joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. I think the title... Title says a lot. Uh, obviously, this is a, a journey of yours in reconciling with your father. But you describe the wisdom you say from your Christian faith that helped you reconcile with your father. Uh, uh, and this wisdom from your faith uh, showed you how to move from hating your father to loving him. And we're yeah. going to find out about that long, rough road your father was on, and the whole family was on, and then. Thank God you've come full circle and uh, you love your father again. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. But it was a long journey. Long, yeah. It took over 35 years. And painful. And painful. Very painful. Very confusing, very painful, very frustrating. Um, but I'm glad I did come full circle, like you said. It was worth the wait. It was worth the time and energy to put into into that because uh, at his death, I was at peace. And was he? Uh, yes, I believe so. Oh, very good. Well, you were a great catalyst to help him uh, get on another road as well, because he went down some dark roads there. He did. He did. And yeah, he made some bad mistakes. And not necessarily all just his, well, it was his fault. He chose to do them, but he was under a lot of pressure, incredible amount of uh, when you get that big diagnosis that you've got cancer, that changes everything. Absolutely, especially it was back in, I believe, the early 70s. Yeah, you know, there weren't support groups. Therapy wasn't very big. Um, we really didn't know much about it. And he was young at the time, but the doctor said this could go either way. They really didn't know. Um, and so that was a huge burden on him physically. You know, it wasn't just after his surgery, he continued to have health problems. And it was um, just very hard on him physically. And then the thought of, you know, is he going to die? You know, my mother told me like 20 years later, she just said, I had him dead and buried five different times. So that's a tremendous amount of pressure and fear to live under. Mm -hmm. So take us back before this diagnosis of cancer. What were what was the family like back then? Well, it was back in the '60s. We were, I would say, a typical middle class family. Grew up in La Crescenta, which is a suburb of L.A. Uh, two boys, then uh, two girls. Mom stayed at home. Dad worked. Um, happy, great neighborhood. Um, new people on the street. You know, kids always played together. Um, I always felt very comforted and safe. Uh, I come home from school. My mom was always there. Um, Dad was an engineer, so he had a good income. 
So it was it was good times. And would you consider you were close to your dad then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we did a lot more uh, together. You know, the, the, the gray wife stuff, the sports things, and, and mm-hmm. things like that together. And what year was it when he got the diagnosis? I think I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was early 70s. And how old were you? So I was probably 11 or 12. I was still in elementary school. So at that moment in time, uh, can you remember what you were feeling? Oh, yeah. When my mom told us, I remember we were in our den watching TV with my brother. She came in. And she said, your dad has stomach cancer. And I just immediately froze because his dad had passed away from stomach cancer. So I just thought, well, he's going to die because that was my only reality at at that point. I just thought, well, my grandfather died, so my dad is going to die. So I just, you know, I was just struck with fear and just thinking, how could we survive without him? looking over at my mom, mother as she was uh, saying this, you know, she's crying, she's weeping. You know, she had no job at the time. She was a homemaker with four kids. And I, I just was very frozen in fear. Right. Typical reaction, definitely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So how did your father deal with it? He... He kept uh, things to himself pretty much. Uh, he pretty much thought, you know, this is just something I have to do. Uh, I just have to do I have to get through it, and then I have to get back to work to support my family. Um, but I think the burden that he might die also was uh, huge for him. as a huge weight on his shoulders as well. Uh, but he was a trooper, and he... When he came home from the hospital, he got back to work as soon as he could. Um, but there was a change in him also. He was different. He looked different. He was a lot thinner. He didn't have as much energy. And uh, his temper was a lot shorter. You know, I didn't... It's kind of like walking on eggshells, you know. Is he going to explode now or, or not? You know, his, his behavior was a lot more unpredictable. So were you afraid of him? Yeah, I, I don't know if he, I was afraid he was going to die. I was afraid to get close to him because I thought I would catch cancer. Um, and then there were times I was afraid of him I, because I didn't know how he was going to react. You know, if he was going to fly off the handle or, or not. Um, so there, there was some fear towards him. So he did enough times that you didn't ever know if he was going to lose control. Right. Right. So how would you describe the spiritual life in your home? Well, at that time we had, um, my mom was Catholic, so we went to Catholic church, and then we stopped and we went to an Episcopal church down the street. And... But we stopped going about, as a family, I'd say in junior, when I was in junior high, we just, for some reason, stopped. Um, and then in high school, I kind of picked it back up, and I went through Young Life, and I got involved in the local Baptist church. So I started to pick up my faith in high school on my own. 
How is it that you literally came to hate your father, who you love so much? Yeah. Um, well, things in, in our home, as I was progressing through junior high and high school, you know, it was what the one thing I learned about fear is if it's not confronted, it doesn't stay dormant. It moves through different stages, such as negativity, anger, and hatred. And for me, hatred towards my father came, this is about a month before I left for college. He came home one evening, um, and we were all in the living room, and he said, uh, I have something to tell the family. This is very important, and it's going to change the whole direction of our family. And I thought, okay, here it is. His cancer has come back. He's going to die. I've been waiting all these years. I knew it was going to happen, and here, here it is. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm in love with another woman, and I'm leaving. And he just left. And I was in shock. I couldn't believe this. I wasn't expecting this. Um, Your mother wasn't expecting it? She wasn't expecting it either. And um, we weren't raised that this was okay to do. Um, he taught us that adultery was wrong, and yet he, he did do that. So I was very disappointed in him, uh, but the real hate came in when his mistress started to call our house and talk to her mother and tell my mother things like, don't ask him for more money, and this was just devastating for her. I, I hated seeing my mom this way. She would talk to his kids about things, and so I, was, I remember I was home uh, from college, and I was out to lunch with him, and I said to him, Dad... Uh, tell her, his mistress, to stop calling the house. You know, this is upsetting us, upsetting mom. You know, it's, it's awful. She has no business or right to do this. And he said to me, he said, I have no control over what she does. And I just sunk in my chair. I, I could not believe that, that came, those words came out of his mouth. I am his own flesh and blood. He's known me for 20 years. He's known this woman for two years, and he won't protect me. And so I decided that I'm going to hate him. I made a commitment I'm going to hate him his and his mistress. And that's when the hate started. I couldn't stand him for not uh, protecting me. He didn't stand up for his own son. So what kind of an impact did this hatred have on you? You know, it had an opposite effect. I thought it would make me strong. I thought I'd be able to stand up to him and her but it had the opposite effect. Uh, she would still call. I would still talk to her because I thought I should be a good Christian and she could manipulate me and I was easily manipulated to listen to her. Turns out she was an alcoholic. Uh, she wasn't making any sense. Um, and against him either, I just would not, it was hard for me to speak the truth to him, to stand up to him. And that baffled me. I thought this commitment you know, the commitment I made was I was going to hate him with every ounce of emotion I could, uh, and it didn't come to fruition. I, it didn't do for me what I thought it would do for me. Well, how did forgiveness come into your life? Well, forgiveness, again, it's a, it is a Christian principle, and I had heard it going through, to church and, and all this about forgiveness. But the way I heard about it didn't make sense to me. Like, I was just supposed to forgive my dad. But I, I thought, well, how can I forgive him if he hasn't 
asked for it himself. It didn't make sense to me. So one day I was listening to the radio, uh, the Dennis Prager radio show, and one of his guests was Jesse Peterson, who was talking about how he hated his mother. And I instantly, that grabbed my attention because it's like, well, I hate my father and his mistress. And he said, um, he didn't say to his mother, uh, I forgive you. He said, mother, please forgive me for hating you for the way you mistreated me. I had never heard of forgiveness that way. He was also more of a victim, but he was asking her uh, to forgive him for hating her. And that just grabbed my attention because it made sense to me. Like he had allowed hatred to enter him, just like I had. And so he was taking responsibility to try to get rid of it. Um, And that's how I first heard about this new concept of forgiveness. And how long did it take you to literally work through all that? It took me a couple of years. Um, I actually went out to speak with him um, because I kind of looked at him as a mentor. And it took me about a couple of years, and I finally did the same thing. I asked my father to forgive me for hating him. Hmm. And what was his reaction? His reaction was he couldn't believe it. Um, He first said, you have nothing to ask forgiveness for. Immediately I was thinking, okay, there's my out, you know, but then I thought, no, 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 this is really, I did this, it was wrong. Um, And he was, he really respected that. And uh, it just turned the direct trajectory of our relationship completely. And when he passed away, what kind of relationship did you have with him? You know, it was completely different from um, from in, when I was younger, like in junior high and high school. Um, with that, um, there was just a lot more kind gestures involved. Uh, I was more attentive to what he needed. You know, as he got older, I really was concerned about taking, helping take care of him, doing things that he couldn't do himself. Um, and was just more involved. I'd call him up and, you know, Dad, let's get together because he would like to talk. He'd like to talk about politics and religion, and I would just listen. Um, and then the, really the final act was um, my younger sister and I found him dead in his condo. And I just remember that evening, I was just running towards him that whole evening, Um you know, going towards his body, seeing, you know, if he had just fallen down, hoping he had just fallen down and would wake up. That wasn't the case. You know, I ran out to get his address for my sister to call 911. I ran back to him, and uh, obviously he had passed away. And really the last act of service I did for him, I saw that he was naked, and I covered his nakedness. And if you had asked me 30 years ago if I would have been able to do this, because as a kid I was always afraid of his death. Mm-hmm. But the strength that God gave me through reconciling with him, I was just, I was right there. I was right there. Touched him. I was right there in his death. Um, not afraid. And, um, you know, afterwards I was, I was in shock because I just didn't expect to see it. But... I was at peace because nothing had been left unsaid. Nothing. 
Well, that's wonderful, and your hope is that your story can help others who may be going through a similar road with a, a parent. Absolutely, and it, it is possible. Miracles do happen, and it is possible. doesn't mean it's going to happen in every situation, but it is possible. I didn't think all of this would happen, you know, but it, it did, and I thank God for it. The title of the book, A Case for Wisdom, a son's story about reconciling with his father. And the author is Jeffrey Woods. Jeff, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can go to my website, www.wisdomcourage.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, also Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and of course, iUniverse. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio, Jeff. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Hidden Truth Behind Beautiful Smiles, Chicago's premier dentist. And of course, he is Dr. Zach Zybeck. And uh, Dr. Zybeck, welcome. Welcome to iUniverse Radio. Good morning, Steve. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, it's a pleasure being here to uh, to talk to you uh, this morning. Well, uh, can I call you Dr. Z? That sounds like uh, what everybody calls you. Yes, sir. That actually makes it easier. You know, sometimes Zyback comes off a little bit uh, <laughs> too strong. How do you spell that? How do you say it? Zyback, Zyback. So I'm like, Dr. Z makes it easy for you guys. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about cosmetic dentistry. It sounds like, uh, you know, that's a tough one to talk about, especially when you say the dentist, you think about pain. But, boy, we're, 
we're this isn't about pain anymore. This is about beautiful smiles, and, and it literally changes people's lives. Absolutely. It changes beautiful lives, and uh, with the new advancement in dentistry and technology, I would love to, uh, you know, our listeners to hear what's, uh, what's the latest so that way, you know, I can help them as much as I can uh, in, in choosing the right choice uh, in creating that beautiful smile that they dreamed of. Well, you've worked with a lot of celebrities. You're uh, working with a lot of beauty pageants. You're in demand because you know what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's more yes, and obviously that comes with passion for the for the for what you're doing. You know, I believe I'm one of those big believers. If you love what you do, you will excel in it. And um, you know, people see that, and uh, you know, from the will of God, you get recognized with that. You know. Well, it's amazing the difference when you look at the photographs in your book. The, of course, the before and after, it's, it's just changes a whole person's outlook. They really not only become uh, confident in themselves, but we're talking now, we're talking about a healthy smile, too. What, tell us about the importance of that healthy smile. I tell you, Steve, uh, it, it's, uh, dentistry nowadays, it's, it's not just about creating that beautiful smile. Of course, that's our main goal. Uh, but there's also behind it, uh, you know, as we know, and I've done research and I've, you know, I've been doing this for over 10 years. Um, you know, there's a link of a healthy mouth to a healthy body. Um, for example, did we know that if you have, um, an infection in your mouth, let's say gum disease, which can be due to lack of brushing or proper flossing, or seeing a regular, regularly your dentist every six months, that can actually cause diabetes. It can cause low birth weight, uh, you know, children. Uh, it can cause um, uh, heart attacks, uh, and the list goes on. So obviously, having a, a healthy mouth and a beautiful smile all will reflect on your inner and outer beauty. Well, we hear it and hear it and hear it, don't we, from uh, folks like you and, uh, you know, our parents, you know, brush your teeth uh, twice a day. Why is that such a tough thing for us to do? Um, I, it's, I, I think it would just, we kind of take it for granted at one point. Maybe our parents at one point when we were younger uh, didn't take it that serious. So they would just tell us, brush your teeth and be done with it. Um, I've seen the two extremes. I've, I've seen where parents are really diligent uh, and, 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 and basically telling their kids and children, uh, you need to do this, and they're watching over their heads. And I've seen it where the parents basically, yeah, I told them he doesn't do it. Uh, we need to take the proactive approach and basically in making sure we instill those uh, beliefs and thoughts that it's an important thing, just as important as... Um, um, you know, drinking milk and eating healthy food, this should be no different. Again, when you say the dentist, we all kind of tense up, but we really shouldn't have to anymore, right? I mean, it's virtually painless, any procedure. Yes, I, I would say that uh, for at least the most part of it, if, especially if, if, you, um, if you're being treated by a well-trained dentist that knows the latest in, you know, in dentistry and the latest uh, in technology that dentistry has to offer. For example, um, a person who is feared of the dentist can um, can undergo any type of cosmetic procedure if the dentist is equipped with uh, and not and has knowledge of uh, different types of anxiolysis such as um, um, nitrous if uh, if it's offered at their office um, different types of um, um, pills that can be taken to calm down the nerves um, and there's a variety of those 
And it's, it's played in conjunction with, um, like, soothing music and massage chairs and a non-threatening atmosphere and environment. Um, like my, my office, for example, a lot of, you know, people fly over to, to come see us from different parts of the state, even some parts of the country. Uh, um, and the reason being is, um, you know, they, they've seen us on different television shows and uh, they, they saw the type of environment that my office, um, you know, has to offer, which is more very laid back. You come to us, a lot of people say, your office does not feel like a dental office. And, and I try to go ahead and say, why do you say that? So I can know exactly what I did different so I can... Um, you know, tell my friends and tell my colleagues, you know, how to make their patients' experience more um, uh, beautiful. And basically, it comes down to uh, stray away from the norm. Um, if you're uh, if you're used to basically uh, the idea of a dental office is white, you know, room with um, um, you know bright color, you know, straight chair, um, serious a serious feeling to it. Stay away from that. Go with more of the spa-like feeling, you know, dim down the lights a little bit in certain parts of the of your office. Have couches versus chairs. Have comfortable uh, recliners. Make it make it feel like they're coming to see um, um, a friend or a home or a, a spa where they're going to go get the massage. You know, people, when they go to a spa, they're not getting nervous. Someone is, you know, someone is putting pressure on you. They're doing stuff like that. But the whole environment creates that candlelight smell. All those things will create the feeling that you are in a non-threatening environment. It must be quite an experience for you when you finally show the finished product, when you put that mirror in front of one of your patients and say, take a look, what do you think? That's actually my favorite part of the job because it's like almost, it's almost like the grade right here. It's like you study, you, uh, you're ready to take the test, you take the test, and now the favorite part is coming back with the results that you, you created, that A-plus-plus plus smile. And that look on their face after all that hard work and, 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 and thought process behind creating that beautiful smile, and then the results, and you see their face and the reaction, that's my A-plus-plus. Plus. That's me feeling like, oh, thank you. I've, uh, you appreciate the work that I did, and you, can, and you can see it through your eyes, that hug that uh, thank you so much, now they're smiling. They've never smiled before. Now all of a sudden they have the biggest, cheesiest smile in the, in the world. <laughs> right. they're, not used to, <laughs> they're not used to smiling yet, but you can tell they're going to get adjusted to it and, they're gonna, and you just change this person's life. Yeah, I mean, you have. You have changed their life. You know, the, a yeah. life that uh, may have been a, not so much confidence or uh, you know, a hesitancy to try some things, do some things, and suddenly they're a new person. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it does wonders. What are some of the questions that a patient should ask their dentist, some critical questions if they wanted to do something like you've described? Okay. Number one, um, there's obviously many dentists claim that they do a lot of cosmetic dentistry and they're proficient in it. The best way to go about that and, and basically seeing if your dentist uh, – does the type of work that you're looking for is number one, show me some before and after pictures. Show me some before and after pictures. And speak to some of your patients who have had treatment with this type of treatment with you. I want to see their experiences. Um, have you done, uh, how, many, how many of these procedures have you done? Um, can you tell me the benefits and the risks 
of those. If a dentist doesn't tell you that there is any types of risk or any types of benefits, it doesn't tell you both sides of the story, then then basically you're not with the right person because, you know, with everything there is a certain type of, uh, uh, just like if you do any plastic surgery, you know, if you um, um, get a nose job or any type of thing, there's risks and there's benefits. Obviously the risks are very minimal, but you, they need to be told that and that's how you're going to know that you're basically with the right person. He's being honest. He's telling you everything that, that goes on with it. Um, have you had any complications? What's the latest? Um, you know, things of that nature. I mean, I, I have a big portfolio. Um, I have uh, patients and I have employees that I have that I've done all this work on, on them. So then when a patient comes tells me, can you show me a bef- uh, before and after of a, of, a, of a patient? Sure. I have one right here. Come here, uh, you know, one of my assistants. Uh, we've done veneers on her. Here's what she looked like before. Here's what she looks like after. Okay, what about luminaires? Yep, I've done one on this one. And I bring in another person who works in the office. You know, we have a, right. you know, we have a staff of over 14 people. So well, even the staff gets interested in doing a lot of these procedures, especially when they see. And that's, that's number one. That's key. When your own staff trusts you and letting you do and work on them, that tells you that they know that you do good work. Um, and you do, and, and they want you to do it on them. What kind of veneers do you recommend? Um, it's different for different people. Um, the latest right now, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a very conservative guy. So if there is a procedure that I can do conservatively, conservatively and get you the best beautiful smile possible with the least amount of um, tooth reduction or um, discomfort, I'm going to choose that route. Uh, sometimes those routes obviously don't pertain to all patients, but sometimes they do. And when they do, that is when I go and, and do those. Such as, um, there is many types of veneers. However, uh, a special type of name brand veneers, such as Lumineers, uh, if done by the right dentist, they look beautiful if they are not even more beautiful than the conventional ones. However, not every patient is a candidate for those. So the key here is having an experienced dentist that actually can differentiate, is this patient a candidate for this procedure? You know, it's not like um, one shoe fits all. You got to basically evaluate the bite, you got to evaluate the face, you got to evaluate the facial structure, uh, and you got to give that smile the character of that patient. So basically, it depends on the smile. But if I were to choose, uh, and, and the patient comes in that is a candidate for Lumineers, because due to the fact that it's a very conservative procedure, it requires minimal, if any, um, removal of tooth structure, then uh, sense the tooth structure, then I'm going to go ahead and, and choose Lumineers for them to give them that smile. That's one, one way of doing it. Second way, if a patient uh, is a candidate for, uh, you know, is interested in braces. Well, uh, to me, uh, conventional braces are a little bit less conservative. And this line is more conservative. So then I would go ahead for myself, for my patients, if they're a candidate for it, I will choose conventional. Uh, I mean, um, I'm sorry, uh, Invisalign braces, which is a clear braces. So they're getting their teeth strained without no one, you know, realizing that their teeth are getting strained. And it requires minimal uh, bonding to their teeth and brackets and wires they can cut and all these things. So if I can choose that route, then I'm going to choose that route. 
It's so important. We hear it and hear it and hear it. It's so important that we visit the dentist at least twice a year. Now, give us the bottom line on that. Why is that so important? It's, it's actually um, twice a year, believe it or not, is the ADA, American Dental Association, standard. So twice a year is really minimal. I have patients who come in to see me every three months. I have patients who come see me every four months. It really all depends on how much plaque does this patient develop. If you develop more plaque than usual, then you're probably going to have to see your dentist more than uh, once every six months. You're probably going to have to see your dentist maybe once every three or once every four. So it's almost like, it's almost like brushing your teeth three times a day versus once a day. Obviously, three times a day is going to be cleaner and better for your health and your mouth, so it's more preferable. But the average is what's minimal that you need to do is one time a day. You know what I mean? Well, a healthy, beautiful smile is just changes a whole person's life, and uh, Dr. Z's been doing this for some time and has celebrities and beauty pageants uh, following him and, and wanting, but in fact, people flying in from all over the country to come to your Chicago office, right? Of course. I mean, even numerous studies have proven that you know, people tend to believe attractive people are more intelligent, more trustworthy, more skilled, dependable, and they're and fun and simply more enjoyable to be around. And that can be, a smile can give you that appearance. And naturally, one's appearance can also tell you that much about a person. However, consciously or unconsciously, appearance plays a significant role in how we form our opinions on others. And that's how that's the type of society we live in today. And you've been recognized by Barnes and Noble as the number one bestseller in health and diet. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's actually, um, I'm very proud of that. That uh, happened recently uh, in my first book. Uh, this is actually uh, my, my second book. And um, this came of, you know, it came about basically a lot of patients wanted to know information. And sometimes they're afraid of asking, you know, their dentist. So they feel like maybe their dentist, um, you know, they're taking too much time. So I've had a lot of uh, requests from my pages. Dr. Z, you're always telling us this stuff, and um, I would love to get, you know, um, your information and, and tell it to my girlfriend, or your the stuff that you're telling me and tell it to my mother. So it came up with, you know, someone planted the seed in my head of writing a book, of, of, of sharing my knowledge to, to people that, that can't, you know, that are still hesitant in going and doing something about their smile and their health, because it's all related together. It's not just a beautiful smile. It's a beautiful smile. It's a healthy body. Everything is correlated together. So I decided to go ahead and write a book, and uh, I had a huge response from my patient base, and uh, they actually, all the bookstores around here, uh, every Barnes & Noble that's around here in the show, ran out of the books, um, and they were, they were back ordering, and they were calling my office, what's going on, and it just, you know, it just, the minute that they launched it, it was just, it was a huge response. So uh, uh, thank God, and uh, so I can say it's all from God. The title of the book, The Hidden Truth Behind Beautiful Smiles, Chicago's Premier Dentist. And, of course, we've been listening to Chicago's Premier Dentist, Dr. Zach Zyback. Dr. Z, tell us how to get your book besides Barnes & Noble's. Where else can we find it? BarnesandNoble.com, Barnes & Noble, the bookstores, uh, Amazon, 
eBay sells it, and we're coming up also with a new um, electronic format of it uh, that's going to be on the, in the app stores, and uh, so that's that's interesting. That's coming up soon. Well, thank so you, definitely Amazon and Barnes and Noble. They have it. Thank you, Doctor Z, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve, for having us. It was a pleasure talking to you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, When Your Child Won't Eat or Eats Too Much, A Parent's Guide for the Prevention and Treatment of Feeding Problems in Young Children. And the author is Dr. Irene Chatur. And Dr. Chatur joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Hello. Great to have you with us. Uh, Your book is really going to help answer a lot of questions that people have, especially with young children. Uh, Seems frustrating at times why children won't eat and then of course there's children that just eat too much and so here you've presented this parent's guide to help parents uh, and you say this young children are very good observers they learn by watching adults and other children this is how they learn to walk and talk and how they also learn to eat and young children want to eat and drink what they see their parents doing I guess and so that's so important isn't it to have that meal time together, sharing that family time, but also providing that kind of role model for uh, eating better and eating right? It's one of the very basic things, and I hope that I will be able to get the message across to many families uh, to not give up on the family dinners. Uh, This is very important, as you mentioned, for 
showing children how the parents eat and modeling is is the most powerful way how parents can teach their children uh, but it also is like a touchstone for the family to get together at the end of the day and uh, it promotes closeness and what i see if parents don't find the time to share the dinner with their children there is a tendency for families to fragment i always say as family dinners go so goes the family and uh, so i just hope that through this book i i can encourage young families to understand the importance of really making an effort to get together at the end of the day and uh, share the meal with their children You've also done extensive research on feeding disorders. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then why it was so important for you to write this book? I'm originally from Germany, and I met my late husband in medical school, and he did not want to stay in Germany. He wanted to go back to his native country, Trinidad, and wanted to practice medicine there. So we left Germany in 68 and spent six months in Trinidad, but then came to the United States in order to get our specialty training. And we liked it a lot and we stayed here. So I trained first in pediatrics, but in my last year of training in pediatrics, I realized that I much more enjoyed talking to the parents and talking to the children than examining their hearts and lungs and tummies, and I decided to go on and uh, train to become a child psychiatrist, which involved uh, training first in adult psychiatry and then in child psychiatry. And I'm board certified in all three specialties, in pediatrics, in psychiatry, and in child psychiatry. But I practice primarily child psychiatry. You say in those early years, it's a real foundation time for a child uh, to establish eating habits and, of course, also can establish very poor eating habits. Yes. Uh, What is so important for uh, parents to understand is that in the first three years, it's the most rapid development of the brain. Uh, There is a process that has been described as pruning which means uh, that uh, those pathways in the brain which are activated, they will make new connections and they grow, whereas other pathways uh, which are not used will obliterate. And this means that children who learn to regulate their eating, their sleep and emotions in a healthy way in those early years, they literally have a head start in life. Uh, On the other hand, if children engage in maladaptive behaviors in those early years, they are very difficult to change as they grow older. Well, in the first few chapters of your book, you explain to parents kind of how to help children develop these uh, eating habits. And so important to set limits. Is that very important? Yes. Uh, There is a body of research by Diana Baumrind. Um, She started her work in the 70s, and 
is she described two dimensions in child rearing. One she called uh, parental responsiveness that we love and attend to the children. And the other one uh, she called uh, limit setting. And the limit setting is just as important as loving the children. Uh, it gives children a sense of security. And this is also so important in the first three years of life, uh, that children understand what is expected and that they learn to live accordingly. Uh, so one of the limits I help parents with is to establish a regular meal pattern uh, so that they have, in general, in, in this country, it ends up with three meals, a breakfast, lunch, dinner, and in the afternoon, a mid-afternoon snack meal. I call it a snack meal uh, in contrast to snacking in a car, in the park, in the shopping center, uh, wherever. Uh, it pounds allow children to snack. And this and lip snacking is really very, um, uh, very harmful to children because they learn to eat without being hungry. And children who have a small appetite, who don't feel the hunger very easily, when they are allowed to snack like this, they are not hungry at mealtime and they don't eat. And children who just love to eat, uh, they eat without being hungry and they overeat and become overweight. So setting limits and having set mealtimes and allow just one snack meal in the afternoon is so important to prevent uh, these excesses of eating, either not eating enough or eating too much, and for children to get really stuck on eating primarily snack foods. Now, your book covers all age groups? No, I, uh, I focus primarily on toddlers, preschoolers, and young school children. Okay. Uh, I do not address the eating difficulties that you see in early adolescence or later adolescence. Um, that is a separate category of eating disorders. And uh, there is a lot of literature that deals with eating disorders we see in the older children and in adolescents. But there is really not much out there for the feeding problems we see in the first five, six years of life. Talk to us about infantile anorexia. Yeah, this is one of the feeding disorders I have studied in, in particular <clears throat> in the last, over the last 20 years. And this is a feeding disorder where children don't seem to experience hunger in the way most children do. These are children who just go for hours without signaling uh, that they are hungry. They're very happy and curious children. They love to play, they love to talk, and uh, they are usually very bright, uh, but they have very little interest in eating. So anorexia means lack of appetite, and I called it infantile anorexia, because this feeding problem shows up in the first few years of life. Um, most commonly, these children um, have difficulty eating, they don't eat enough, 
they don't gain weight enough, they become underweight, and this can start as early as six to nine months of age, but more commonly in the in the second and third year of life, that these children really uh, become quite underweight because they just don't want to eat. Uh, I My favorite way to describe them is they love everything in the world except food. And you have case studies in most of your chapters as well. Yes. And I, um, I have heard from parents uh, when I have written papers and I put uh, case studies in papers which I wrote uh, that it was particularly helpful for them to read the case studies because then they could directly relate uh, to uh, their own child uh, when they read how I describe how children with these different feeding problems develop. What about selective eaters? That's one of your chapters of just picky eaters, or is there more to it than just that? There is more to it. Um, and I, I don't like the term picky eater. Uh, because it means something different to every person. Uh, some people uh, think that these are just very finicky, um, willful children who just um, don't want to go by the general rules of eating everything there is on the table. Uh, and um, But it is a much more difficult uh, situation. And there is one group of selective children who realize that their parents really want them to eat and they like to make demands. Uh, the, the mother brings one food, they say, no, I don't want it, I want another food. And the mother brings another food and they realize that they can really gain control over their mothers in particular by refusing to eat certain foods. So they do it for People call it manipulation. Uh, and this is very different from children who have poor, have really bad sensory experiences when they first are exposed to certain foods. And uh, these children are born with these sensory difficulties. And what happens is when they're introduced to new foods, which is most commonly uh, when they're around... Uh, nine, ten months or one or two years when they are introduced to a variety of table foods, uh, that the children, uh, when they first put the food in their mouth, uh, they may grimace if it's a mild aversion, uh, but they spit it out or they might even gag and vomit. And then they become scared to eat that food anymore because they had such a bad reaction to it. And sometimes parents don't realize when a child spits out the food or gags how serious it is for the child. And they keep on trying to get the child to eat it. And the more they try, the more fearful the children get. And they are not only fearful to eat that particular food, but then they begin to generalize. And uh, so if it was a green vegetable like spinach, they might refuse all green foods. Or if it was a yellow food, like one little boy told me, he couldn't eat any yellow food because his mommy gave him yellow squash and it made him gag and then he threw up and he was scared. Every time he saw yellow food, 
that he would uh, uh, he would throw up. So these children develop really serious fears. And the more the parents try to get them to eat these foods, the more fearful they get. And then develops this really bad interactional uh, cycle where the parents get more and more frustrated because the children eat a, eat a very limited diet and the children become so worried about mealtime because they are afraid to eat these foods which were so aversive to them in the first place. So what I hope through the book I can help parents understand this feeding difficulty and not make children eat foods that uh, that they are so scared of. All it does, it really makes the problem worse. Mm. And my whole message in the book is that I want help to help parents to help their children so they can be uh, the best parents for their children. Right. We only have a couple of minutes left, Doctor. Of course, we have a big... Uh, uh, I guess that was a poor uh, pun to talk about obesity in this uh, uh, country today and in the world, but how do we help children who eat too much? As we know, there is a very high genetic predisposition for obesity. Uh, but genes does not mean destiny. And other colleagues and I have been able to demonstrate uh, that even with a high genetic predisposition, young children can be helped to eat normally. And uh, there are a few things that uh, that uh, we observe in children who overeat. Uh, these children often eat at a faster rate than other children. They also are more um, prone to respond to palatable foods so if you have foods out there, uh, these children just want to eat them without being hungry. And they have less awareness when they are full. So what I do with these children uh, is that the principle that is good for all children, that means to have a set meal schedule, is most important for these children. Three meals and a mid-afternoon snack meal. And there should be absolutely no snacking, no drinking of milk, no drinking of juice or soda in between. The only thing these children or any children should drink in between is water. Now, the additional thing that is very helpful for children who are prone to overeat is to give them small portions and allow them to have second and third and if they want fourth helping until the child really can feel that he or she is full. When parents do this, uh, and children are not anymore restricted during mealtime, what parents often do uh, when these children want more and more of their foods, uh, is that they realize and they learn when they're satiated, they learn when they're full. And it is often after just two, maybe three helpings, small helpings. Mm -hmm. The other thing that helps with these children is if the parents give them vegetables along with the other foods and uh, make the vegetable portion relatively bigger than their favorite foods. And they have to eat what's on their plate before they can have another helping. Mm 
that does also slow them down in, in their eating and it helps them to pay attention to when their tummy is full. It is remarkable, the parents who can do this with their children. I have had very obese little children who did just beautifully and developed into healthy eaters uh, and who had a normal size. We've been listening to Dr. Irene Chatur. She is the author of her book, When Your Child Won't Eat or Eats Too Much, A Parent's Guide for the Prevention and Treatment of Feeding Problems in Young Children. Doctor, tell us how to get your book. You can uh, buy it on Amazon.com and you can get it uh, through iUniverse.com. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.